left uh, Saturday morning, I believe. We'll be back Friday night. And so if you just uh, continue to pray for them as they're gone, uh, I'm sure they're going to have some great stories when they come back. We'll either hear it next Sunday or the Sunday preview, uh, following, but it'll be great to hear what God is doing through them and with them in Honduras. Um, also, we are in um, the, the, the middle of a series. Well, we just started, I guess. It's not the middle yet. It's a long series, but uh, we are in the beginning of a series called... It's kind of obvious, right? right, what it's called up there. It's boldly stated out here for us. So a series called Bold. And in this series, we are going to be walking through what book of the Bible? Oh, thank you. I'm so glad somebody said that. Normally, again, uh, because I hang out with students a lot, I'll ask them, hey, what book of the Bible are we in? And they'll go. And it's not because they don't know. It's just because they don't want to be wrong. So they're like, I'm not, no, I'm not saying this. So for you guys that yell stuff out. I'm all for it, even if it's not right. I love it. We are in a series, Book of Acts, called Bold. And so I'm thinking this week, as I get opportunity to talk about Acts 1 a little bit today, uh, some stories of boldness. And this is a story that kept popping into my head. So if you indulge me for a minute, I'll just tell you, I'll tell you one story um, about my kids who aren't sitting here so I can tell you the truth now. First hour, I had to, you know, give the light version. But, um, but this is the real version here. I can't, I, I told my daughters I wouldn't tell anybody which daughter it is, so I'll leave it up to you to figure out. I have two daughters, one's 16, one 14, so I'll let you decide which one it is. But, but uh, back when she was in uh, uh, first grade, I think it was first or second grade, um, she had uh, a friend, she had some friends, and so she, um, uh, we found out what happened later because of a phone call, but... I'll tell you the story from beginning to end. She was talking with one of her friends in first grade uh, about somehow they got talking about Jesus. I don't know. My, my kids from, from earliest days loved Jesus. Probably they just saw love for Jesus in the home and they just loved Jesus from the earliest days. Super cool blessing if that's your story or if your kids right now are in that. So they did. They just loved Jesus. They thought talking about Jesus was like a normal thing. And so they were at their public school doing their thing in first grade. And my daughter talking to her friend. And she goes, oh, are you a Christian? And her friend goes, Yeah. And my daughter goes, oh, cool. Do you go to church? And she goes, no. And my daughter goes, oh, you can't be a Christian. (laughs) Theology maybe needed some working, but her boldness was what was so cool about that story. Now, I started that by saying we found out about it later because we uh, got a phone call later. So we got to have a meet with some parents and got to know new people, which is always cool when you make new friends that way. So that was cool. Um, So that was kind of a story that I had rolling in my head about boldness honestly kids very often are super bold my is that fair i mean it's like this isn't said right but it's like they haven't learned they're not supposed to be yet they haven't learned that there's like off topic you know you don't talk about those things they just say what they're thinking which which brings some really cool stories and some are funny and some are a little embarrassing maybe but but they're really bold stories and I just was thinking about that. I was watching some YouTube this week. I landed on this video. It'll take a couple minutes. I just want to show it to you. I'll set it up with this. It's another story of a bold kid. She's at Disneyland, or Disney World maybe, and she meets a character from a Disney movie called Beauty and the Beast. You've seen this movie, some of you? Yeah, some of you who have kids are like, <laughs> um, I understand. Uh, and she meets the character of Gaston. So if you remember who that is, this is how this rolls. Here we go. Your favorite? He's your favorite. You have seen him, right? He's always like Blormack. He's hideous. He's got razor sharp claws. And he stole my girl. 
We have to talk. We have to talk. Listen. Now that you've met me and you've seen that I'm the most handsome man in town, you know I'm much better than that. No, no, no. No, he's not marrying Belle. Belle's marrying me. No. Oh, God. Listen. 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 Oh, I'm listening. Linda, listen. No. Are you, do you work with the beast? Is that what you're doing? You're here to trick me. Is that what you're here? Yes, I do. It's the beast. That's what you just told me. No, now that you've met me, obviously me. Yes. No, no. It's not me. It's in my reflection. No. No, it's the princess. Oh, it's the princess. Oh, she's the only one that matters. It has to be princess. What? No, you don't. No, she doesn't matter anymore. The only one that matters is. No, no. I don't know where this girl came from, but somebody needs to put her back in the kitchen right now. Enough of that. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Never, ever, ever. I'm disgraced. Publicly humiliated. No, I will have Belle. Make no mistake about that. Well, we know what we have to do with me. Yes, an ugly friend. And he's stronger than you. No, he's oh! <laughs> Absolutely not. That is not true. This girl is spreading lies. Do not listen to this enchantress. Do not listen to her. It's not true. Oh, well, we already know who will win that fight then, don't we? No, he will win He's going to win the fight? No, he's not going to win the fight. He's Okay, so uh, she's convinced of her position, right? She's not letting that guy. That guy did a great job playing along, too. What a cool little story. We're talking about boldness, setting the tone of just thinking what it means to be bold. Because, because what we're digging into over the next number of weeks is this concept of boldness. This, this very first church that ever existed was a group of messed up, broken, kind of nobodies that, that their only chance, well, they really had no chance of succeeding, but, but they were bold. And not only do they succeed, but they like they changed the, the, the world for decades and thousands of years. The world is impacted because of this small group of kind of broken, messed up people. They were bold. They had these ideas in their head that they were just absolutely convinced of. And they were incredibly bold. It's interesting because in our culture, we really respect boldness like like maybe we don't like it sometimes when it's directed at us but but more often than not we really appreciate boldness we respect boldness when we hear stories of people stepping out in boldness we think things like ah it's great or ah, i wish i could do that ah that's amazing like we have this thing in our culture that respects boldness and so we're going to dig into the book of Acts this morning, Acts chapter 1. If you can find that, that would be great. There's no verses that are going to pop up on the screen. So if you have hopefully your copies of the scriptures in front of you, that would be great. Um, and if you don't, there are, there are Bibles right in the pew backs there, and you can grab one of those. Acts chapter uh, 1, I think it's on page 909, if that helps at all. So there, there you go. But I want you to see this event in the, in, in the story that's going on here. The author of Acts is a guy by the name of Luke. I think that was mentioned last week. Luke wrote two books. They're really companion books, not necessarily designed to be separated, but they are. One was Luke, right? And then the second one is Acts. 
Luke writes these because he's really trying to build a case and and demonstrate for this one particular person named Theophilus uh, the story of Jesus, who he was, and the conviction that Luke felt about him. It's interesting because Luke was a doctor. We kind of have a stereotype that I think is probably accurate, that doctors are incredibly detail-oriented. I'm looking down at my friend Aaron here, and he's not making eye contact with me. Because I think doctors are super detail-oriented. It's how they do their thing. It's how they have to make diagnosis. They have to understand the facts, the details, before they can make a guess at what's happening. It's wired into their DNA. Luke was one of these guys. So when we read his books, we get probably more detail than like most people care about. And yet Luke is incredibly detailed, incredibly factual. And so he writes this book. We're going to jump into the second book called Acts. Acts chapter 1 is where we're going to be. All right. I want to stop a few times in this event, so keep your, page, uh, your finger in the page there or on your electronic device or whatever. But I just want to read a short event. We'll stop a couple times just to be sure that we're on the same page. We'll draw some conclusions, and then we'll be done for the morning. Fair enough? Luke cha- or Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 12. And just to set this up, the last thing that happened to this group of people is that, is that Jesus said, go and wait for some power. It's going to come. Just hang out. It'll be okay. Just wait. They're waiting. Here we go. Verse 12. It says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day journey away. And when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Now, now count these names here. Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Pause pause there for a second. How many did you count of named disciples? (laughs) If you counted 11, you're right. If you counted other numbers, we're doing common core math, and that's quite okay, all right? But 11 is what I think the number of names there are, 11, uh, 11 disciples. And it also mentions that there was some women there. There was this group of women that it seemed to have traveled with the disciples. We're not really sure of a number, but they were part and parcel to the whole thing that Jesus was doing with what we often refer to as his guys. We kind of say that non-gender specific because there was a group of women that traveled. And then also it specifically mentions Mary, Jesus's mom. She's with him in this upper room. And then it mentions, uh, and Jesus' brothers. Jesus' brothers is interesting because these are the brothers that didn't believe in Jesus when Jesus was alive. Jesus is saying, no, I'm the Messiah. And they're like, yeah, whatever. And so they just weren't really buying into that whole thing, not sure what to make of it, until Jesus' crucifixion rose again from the dead, appeared to them after death. They had a different story. Oh, yeah, we're in. Yeah, we get it now. Kind of like no-brainer, right? Dead guy appears to you. Yep, whatever you say, we're in. Okay? So this is the group that's meeting in the upper room. There are two... I think, really noticeable exceptions from the 12, there's 11 disciples, there were 12, two really noticeable exceptions of people that aren't there. Can you, if you're in first hour, don't give this away yet, but can you guess, can you think like me? Do you know who I'm thinking of? Two that were not named. High schoolers don't like to be wrong either. It's really cool. I think somebody said Judas, right? Judas seems to be a really noticeable one. Now you're going, yeah, we know, Chris. We know the story. We know what happened to him. Okay. So Judas is one. The other one's a harder, a little harder to guess. It mentions Mary, Jesus's mom, but not Joseph. Isn't that kind of fascinating? 
So the theory on Joseph, it doesn't tell us in the Bible what happened to Joseph. The last time Joseph showed up in the account was when Jesus was 12 and they went off to the temple as a family and extended family and friends to do kind of their Jewish religious thing. So they went to the temple. They lost Jesus. Do you kind of remember this story? Some of you remember this. They lost Jesus. Mary doesn't know. Mary and Joseph don't know that he's gone for a couple of days on the way home. And then Mary freaks out like a good mom should. And she, I think, yells and screams at everybody. And they hustle back to the temple and they find Jesus and she chews him out. Crazy, right? And he's like, come on. And so that whole episode mentions Joseph at about age 12. Uh, Joseph's not 12. Jesus is 12. Joseph is a little older. Um, and then Joseph isn't mentioned again. He's not mentioned when the family comes to get Jesus in the middle of Mark when they're not so sure what he's thinking. Joseph isn't mentioned. He's not mentioned at the crucifixion, although Mary is, but Joseph is not. We have this interchange between Jesus and John. When Jesus is on the cross, he tells John, hey, take care of my mom. So the good assumption there is that somewhere between age 12 and and age 30 in Jesus' life, somewhere between when he was 12 and when he was 30, Joseph probably died. And it it seems very possible, as now we kind of imagine into the situation a little bit, it's really a potential that Mary lived Jesus' teenage years as a single mom, raising a number of kids. So if that's your story, the Bible identifies with that. It's very possible that Jesus was raised as a teenage boy, 14, 15, 16, 17, raised by a single mom. So again, if that's your story, like Jesus identifies with that. I find that interesting. We, we don't know when Joseph died, uh, but, but it seems that this is a potential, an interesting guess. Lots of people who think through this think that it's probably likely that he died when Jesus was young. So we know Joseph isn't there, and then we see that Judas is not there either. And some of you know the account of Judas. Let's read it real quick just so we know what's going on with Judas because this sets up the situation that's going to happen. In Acts chapter 1, if you would jump over to verse 18... Because Luke, that really detailed doctor, decides to put this little parenthetical in here so that his readers are clear on what happened to Judas. In verse 18, he says this. Now this man, that's Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. That's that money that the the, uh, religious leaders gave him to betray Jesus. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. I know. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Ekadama, which means the field of blood. So Luke describes Judas's demise this way. And and, and for a second, I just want to go back to Matthew chapter 27. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want to, because I want you to hear Matthew's account of Judas's demise, just because there seems to be a discrepancy but I don't think it exists. But some people will say, yeah, see, you can't trust the Bible because there's all these discrepancies in there. In Matthew 27, starting in verse 3, this is how Matthew describes the end of Judas's life. He says, Then when Judas, his betrayer, Jesus' betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priests taking the pieces of silver said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. 
We have these two seemingly different stories of the end of Judas's life, but if you do a little bit of thinking and imagination, it's not hard to compile these things. As Judas is feeling his sense of guilt and frustration and whatever he's feeling, he decides he's going to end his life by hanging. It's not all that impossible to imagine that he found a place that there would be some element of a cliff and a rope over a tree limb and a jump. And if there's a broken limb or a broken branch, that would seem to connect with Luke's account. I want to be sensitive about this and not dwell on it. If we want to talk more about it later, we certainly can. But in your heads, that kind of makes sense how these two things might compile, right? So Peter gives us his account of what happened to, or Peter, as he's talking, Luke recounts what happened to Judas. Joseph's not there. Judas is not there. And this issue of Judas not being there means that they're now at 11 disciples. This is a big issue for them. Like we might look at that and be like, hey, for what? But this is a big, this is a big issue for them. And it sets up this decision that they have to make that, quite frankly, this morning gives us a pretty good model for how to make decisions. We deal with decisions all the time, big ones, little ones. Uh, this is a, probably a pretty good, pretty healthy model of how to make a decision. And if you could imagine the conversation, imagine if this was a church board meeting. How that conversation went around the table when they go, hey, okay, so there's only 11 of us now. There were 12. There's now 11. So I don't know. Do we pick another one? Do we not? And somebody's going to ask the question of that. Wait a minute. Who picked the, uh, the 12 disciples by hand? I'm asking you guys. Who actually picked the 12 disciples? Jesus. Jesus is gone. Who are you to think you're Jesus? What, are you going to go pick another person? You're not Jesus. Imagine that, that meeting, how that went. Like, don't tell me I'm not Jesus. I know I'm not Jesus. We need to pick with 12 because there's 12 people. There's 12 people. We've got to have 12 people. I don't know. 12 is a magic number. I don't know. Whatever. Right? So that meeting, I, I got to imagine it went a little heated. I got to imagine that they went back and forth trying to figure out what do we do in this decision that we have to make. Jesus isn't with us. Do we get to pick? Do we just wait for, like, God to pop down a name? I don't know how this works. So we have this decision that's set up. Here we go. We'll jump back into the story in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. We hear about Judas. We jump down to verse 20. It says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. And let another take his office. Let's pause there for a second. And I want to just know that we're on the same page with this. So they begin to think about what do we do? And somebody in the group is absolutely convinced that there are sections of the Bible that apply to their situation. Matter of fact, these two sections right here, these two quotes are actually both out of the book of Psalms. Matter of fact, the first one says, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it is actually out of Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is talking about some enemies and, and they're praying against these enemies so much so that the enemies will be destroyed and nobody will be sleeping in the tents anymore. And in the second section, that second line, the one that says, let another take his office, is from Psalm 109. And this one is, is designed around this idea that um, this person, this enemy uh, king was, was prayed against and he, and he demised somehow and there would be somebody else who would take his office that would be better. So these, these two psalms that, that these disciples are convinced apply to their situation. Here's a funny thing. Judas is not mentioned in either of those psalms. It doesn't say, and you're going to have a guy that's part of your group that's going to do this thing and not be there anymore, so you should pick another one. It, it, it's not even that clear. But somehow these guys are convinced that these two passages of, of, of Scripture apply to their situation. 
fascinating to me that these two psalms come out of a group of psalms called the imprecatory psalms. That's a cool word. You can impress your your friends with that word later. Imprecatory. Imprecatory means uh, cursing, like to call down curses on. These psalms are wrapped around calling curses down on enemies. They're wrapped around praying vengeance, praying pain upon people that are doing you wrong. These are not good devotional psalms. Like when you're feeling like you want this sense of uplifting in the morning and you go to Psalm 109 or 69 and it's like death, you know? You're like, oh. Um, As a sophomore in college, so probably 20 years old, I was at a Christian college. Uh, I had some friends and a guy that was kind of an acquaintance. Uh, I was the first guy I'd ever really known who had uh, missionary parents. Both his parents were missionaries in Colombia. This is like the 90s, kind of the, the, the height of the um, Colombia drug lords you know, you know, thing. And so uh, I was with this friend and we found out his parents had been uh, uh, taken hostage by these uh, Colombians. And so we got together to pray like, like we should. And we started praying around the circle and everyone's praying kind of like what you expect, like for the, these parents would be released or for their safety, praying things like maybe be an opportunity to share Christ with these cap, uh, captors. Um, and all those things. And then it got to my friend whose parents had been kidnapped and he started praying things like death and destruction on these captors. And I'm sitting there going, oh, are we allowed? To, I don't know if we're allowed to do that. He was praying these imprecatory psalms. And, and, and we could talk, I could talk forever about this. This is interesting to me. But, but there is something to the reality of being honest with God. And the psalms are beautiful. This honest heart with God. Like sometimes we pray or we talk or we think ways that we think Jesus wants us to. That's so silly because like God knows our heart. And the Psalms and the imprecatory Psalms are, are born out of pain and frustration and a sense of injustice and they're crying out for God to be just. And so it's interesting because these disciples, this maybe gives us a little clue into what they're thinking, what they're praying what they're talking about. Because it wasn't just Jesus that was betrayed that night. We know this, right? I mean, the disciples really got betrayed as well. These guys had spent three years of their lives living with Judas. They had ate with him. They had slept in the same tent as him. They had, they had walked in the, in the pouring rain with him. They had suffered together. They had experienced joy together. They had seen healings together. They had, they had been chased by demon-possessed people running at them together. I'm like, they experienced three years of joy and crisis and excitement and pain and frustration together. And when Judas betrayed Jesus, he betrayed the other 11 as well. And I'm sure none of us in here can relate to being betrayed. And yet the disciples were. And that sense of frustration, that sense of anger, that sense of hurt, like we kind of get a little glimpse here by the Psalms that they're quoting, Psalm 69, Psalm 109. We think this applies to what we're talking about. So they, they begin to, to, to lay that out and, and, and try to figure out what that means. We'll, we'll continue on in the story. Verse 21 says, uh, and, and Peter's talking here again. They've just laid out some scripture they think applies. So he's going to draw some qualifications here. He says, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed 
And they said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one of these two you've chosen to take the place in his ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside and go to his own place. And they cast lots for them and the lot fell to Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So they, they, they think about some Bible. They, they, they draw some qualifications. It's got to be a guy who's been with us for this length of time. We just think that that's important. Why? Because they thought that that was important. They ask for some, some names. Hey, who do you think it is? A couple names come up. They cast lots, falls to Matthias, and now he's one of the 12, just like that. Uh, let's take a second and talk about the, the awkward elephant in the room, which is casting lots. This is awkward. Uh, this is a very strange thing that would be great to explain away. I'll just tell you the truth instead. The, um, the oddness of lots is that it happened very often. It was a very cultural thing that these guys experienced, not just a Jewish cultural thing, but really a lot of nations in that time practiced this concept of lots. We're not exactly sure what casting lots looked like, but it was probably some sort of a dice situation. We used to roll some dice. Maybe it was with stones. Maybe it was with sticks, whatever. You kind of roll them. And, and however they landed would, would make the decision between two or three things. Go left, go right. Uh, pick uh, uh, Joseph, pick uh, uh, Matthias, you know, depending on what decision we're trying to make. The, 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 the concept of lots comes up 70 times in the Old Testament. And it's not just a couple of times it's used. Seven zero, seventy times in the Old Testament. It's used seven times in the New Testament, this being the very last occasion. So this idea of lots, uh, matter of fact, it was used uh, way back in the day when the Jews were trying to figure out who was going to get which piece of land. They used lots to begin to spread out some of that. Cast some lots, gave this amount with this lake or river or mountain or whatever to this group over here. Um, if you remember the story of Jonah, remember this story, Jonah, like swallowed by a big fish thrown up where he was supposed to go running from God, that whole thing. If you remember that story, when he's on the boat and this huge storm is coming and the sailors are freaked out, who, by the way, are not Jewish. The sailors are not Jewish sailors. They're freaked out. They think they're going to die. They're convinced some God is throwing this storm on them. So they cast lots to figure out who the problem child is. And the lot falls on Jonah. Isn't that crazy so so then then uh we see it we see it happen um with priests sometimes deciding on what the priest's duty was going to be for the day they would cast lots and the lot fell on a certain priest who was going to do this job or this job or this job or whatever we see lots used all over the place now i want to be cautious because i'm not saying lots are prescriptive for today so when you're deciding where to go to for lunch uh, maybe you could roll dice to figure that out who cares but but if you're making decisions in life i can't say you ought to roll Lots to do that, but what's the contemporary example of lots? Well, this kept popping into my head this week. None of you had any of these, right? Because if you grew up in my home, you were not allowed to have this. My mom, if she sees this, will call me and ask me why I'm touching a magic eight ball. But, you know, you shake it and ask it a question, it's supposed to give you an answer. I can't advocate that this is a good way of making decisions. And I don't want to say it's exactly like lots, but in culture, there's some similarity. Except the big difference is that God used lots like he he gave his will to people often through the casting of lots that's strrange maybe the best way to explain that at least the way i let it settle in my head is that god speaks through cultural mediums of making decisions what does that look like today making pro and con lists you do that some of you guys are logical people and you like making pro and con lists and the rest of us are like what are you doing there's too many words all right Maybe, maybe it's the concept of, of Google research or reading Yelp reviews, you know, or something like that. I think the point is that God 
works through cultural approaches to making decisions. At least that's what we see with lots. I'm not going to encourage you to roll dice to figure out which of your children to give up or who to marry. It's probably not a good call. But there is some concept with God does direct through cultural approaches to making decisions. Okay, that's lots. We talked about that. Let me, let me just line out a couple of things. We said that, that there's some real practical um, concepts here for making decisions. Okay, so, so I'll give you five. If you want to write them down, great. They'll pop up behind me. If you don't want to write them down, that's completely fine. To at least what we see uh, here. Uh, I don't know that you have to go in order. It's not necessarily one through five in order, but these are probably some good concepts to have in your head when trying to make a decision. Number one, uh, pray a lot, right? We see this right in verse 14. The, the, the group is gathered and already praying. That's how they landed on the fact that these Psalms had some shaping on their particular situation because they were praying and talking and praying and talking. As a matter of fact, whatever, whatever knucklehead, I think it was James, I'm just making that up, but came up and said, hey, I think Psalm 69 and 109 apply to this. And I imagine one of the disciples like Peter going, okay, you know what? Let's, let's pray on this for the rest of the day. Read it, pray, read it, pray, read it, pray. And when we get together for dinner, we'll talk a little more about how we're feeling about this. Okay, let's do it. And they did. Prayed and read and prayed and read, and somehow they landed together. Pray a lot. Um, I'll just confess it. You can be like my massively huge confessional, because probably nobody else is like me in this. But very often, I make a plan. Do you know where I'm going? And I pray real quick afterwards. Oh, God, don't let this screw up. <laughs> Probably not the best approach to making decisions. Certainly not what we see in the disciples as they make a decision, right? They're just constantly in prayer, and out of that prayer comes this decision. Okay, number two, uh, develop some practical guidelines to narrow the decision. Like we see that in verse 21. We see that, that Peter says, hey, it's got to be a guy who's been with us this length of time. Um, and we think that's, that's important. We just think that's a guideline that's important. So develop some practical guidelines. Why did Peter land on that guideline? I don't know, to be quite honest. I don't know. They felt that it was important. For whatever reason, they felt like that was important. So I don't know that all the guidelines are going to be driven exactly out of the Bible and you're going to have a chapter and verse for every guideline, but there's going to be things that are just important that you think are vital in helping to make that decision. So develop some guidelines to help narrow the decision down. Number three, um, get some wise counsel. I think we see this in verse 15 uh, where, where it says, you know, they, they asked for some names and some names were put forth, right? So it wasn't just Peter going, hey, I think it's going to be that guy. They asked for some names. They were praying together, talking together. There was a group think going on there. Get some wise counsel, right? Uh, number four, make the decision. <laughs> that seems silly to put it in there, but sometimes some people are really good at making their lists and, and thinking their thoughts and maybe even praying and finding scripture and getting wise counsel from this person and 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 this person. Are you with me? And then they're done. They talked about it so much. They don't ever make a decision. Make the decision. Make the decision. And then number five is don't look back or don't like doubt it or worry it. It's the second half to that. Sometimes people make decisions and then second guess that decision forever. Right, but we don't see that here. We see, as a matter of fact, it's so interesting to me after this, like, 20 verses of setup, this is how it ends. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered amongst the 11. <laughs> End of story. And it moves right on into chapter 2. Right? Make that decision and move on. Sometimes we want to worry the decision over and over and over and over. So, some practical guidelines on making a decision. But 
I said at the very beginning that, that this whole series and even this morning's talk is all about boldness. So the question is, where's the boldness in that? Because like lots of people can make decisions. We're all going to make decisions on where we go to lunch today. Some of us are bold and some of us are not. Like not bold people can make decisions. So where's the boldness in that? Well, here's what I really want to land on this morning. So if you've tuned me out for 20 minutes, that's totally fine. Come back to me for the next five. Totally fine. Come back to me in the next five. Because this is the part that I think makes a difference. See, this, this event is set right in the middle of a sandwich. There's, there's one thing happening that this event interrupts. See, what happened right before this event is that Jesus said, wait for the Holy Spirit. Wait for this power that's going to come. I don't think the disciples have a clue what that means. And they certainly don't know what's going to happen in chapter 2, verse 1. And I don't want to tell you if you don't know what's, ha- what's going to happen in chapter 2, verse 1, because it's like an awesome surprise. And the more surprised you are about it, the cooler it is. Because these guys like, had no clue between the waiting and the happening of what was really going to happen to them. It's like insane. All they know is that they're supposed to wait. So it's interesting because this event is sandwiched right in between these, these two comments about the Holy Spirit. Because I don't think the boldness is in the fact that they made a decision or even in the fact that they knew how to make a good decision. That's good stuff. But I don't think that's where the boldness comes from. I think the boldness comes from their absolute conviction of two things. Number one, they were absolutely convinced in the truth, accuracy, sufficiency, uh, relevancy of the Bible. They were absolutely convinced that the Bible they had applied to their everyday lives and into this decision, this situation about replacing Judas. They were absolutely convinced that those Psalms, even though it doesn't mention Judas's name, absolutely gave some principle about what they were supposed to do next. They were tearing apart the Bible and the scriptures to find something that would help them think, what's the next move? What's the next step? And they were absolutely convinced that there would be something there that would help them think this through. I want to say that that's true of our culture. I'm not talking American culture. I'm not talking American church culture. I'm talking like North Point, our culture, my culture. I want to say that we are absolutely convinced that the scriptures give us application and direction for our daily living this adventure with Jesus. I hope, I hope that's true. I want that to be true. But we, we kind of know if it's true or not by how much time we spend in it. They had this, this thing a few years ago, and I'm not really, I mean, I guess I'm knocking it, but I don't want to knock it too much because it's a great starting point. But it's called the One Minute Bible. Remember this thing? And, and that's a great, that's a good starting point. But if that's where you land for your whole, you know, experience with Jesus, one minute a day, the design was you read the Bible one minute a day and, you know, move on from there. We wouldn't, I hope we would never do that to our spouse, right? You get one minute a day, honey. Or our kids. Could you imagine parenting one minute a day? Oh, man. I don't know why my kids are all messed up. Right? One minute Bible. Like, are we convinced that the Bible is relevant and applies to my everyday living? I hope that that's true. Because these guys were, and they were bold because of it. They're going to go on to do amazing things. Matter of fact, we're going to work our way through the book of Acts. You're going to see these events and these stories that happen. This crazy boldness. And sometimes we're going to look at these events and be like, Man, I could never do that. And sometimes we're going to be looking at him and going like, that guy's crazy or whatever. But at the end of the day, these people were 
bold and their boldness changed the world. Not because they knew how to make a decision, but because they were convinced of two things. One is the, 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 the authority, the truth, the relevancy of Scripture. The second thing that they were absolutely convinced of was the sovereignty of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Convinced that God was moving and working and doing stuff. And the craziest part of that is I get to be part of that. They were absolutely convinced of this. So much so that they were able to make decisions. They were able to to move on. They were absolutely convinced in the sovereignty of God, that he has a plan he has a purpose. And I'm going to make some decisions. And, and quite honestly, sometimes I used to think that, that God had every decision laid out for me and I just had to like be sensitive to his will and then I would know what I'm supposed to do. And there's a real comfort in that thinking. And I'm just being honest. I don't think that anymore. I think God has plan and God has plans and some things are specific he wants me to do. But I think very often he gives me choices of a couple of things. And honestly, I hate it. <laughs> I'd rather him just tell me what to do on a billboard sometimes. And I get to choose to obey or not, I guess. But sometimes we have to think it through and make decisions. But, but sometimes that stymies people and they're stuck in that. And they're like, ah. But the reality is if I'm convinced of the sovereignty of God, that God is doing something, I'm convinced in his sovereignty. I want to make these decisions and choices. I'm going to be bold as best I can. But at the end of the day, I know God reigns. And I know God's directing. I know God's going to figure it out. And if I screw that decision up, God's, God's bigger than me for Pete's sake. Right? They are absolutely convinced of these two things. The truth, the relevancy, the accuracy of Scripture that applies to me. There's something in there that helps me understand what I'm supposed to be about. And as I spend more time in that Scripture, and as I spend more time reading the Bible, I get to know this God who loves me so much. I get to know His character, and that infuses into me and develops the person that I am. And at the end of the day, I'm absolutely convinced of His sovereignty. That God is moving and doing and active, and I get to be part of that. See, this event is sandwiched between two experiences of the Holy Spirit, waiting for and the coming of. And these disciples and the women and Jesus' mom and his brothers, they are absolutely convinced the scripture applied to them and that God had a plan was sovereign. And that allowed them to be bold in crazy, amazing ways. This is just a tiny decision. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see all kinds of boldness pop out and, and, and it's going to come back to these realities. We're going to end this morning uh, with a song. And the, the song is called uh, Give Me Faith. And this, um, there's this bridge part of the song that really kind of belts out. Sometimes the song starts soft. We're going to start it loud this morning. But, but there's this bridge part that I really, if you do this for me, uh, with me this morning, want to use as a prayer as we leave. And, and the words read like this. It says, I may be weak, but your spirit's strong in me. My flesh may fail, my God, you never will. My flesh may fail. My God, you never will. I may be weak. Your spirit's strong in me. That's a, that's a prayer of boldness. That's a prayer of boldness. And so as that section hits, man, my hope would be that we belt that out. We don't care how bad we sound. We don't care how bad the person next to us sounds. But that's just the cry of our heart, that we would really pray out, God, help me to be bold, not because I'm great at making decisions, not because I, you know, I do this or I do that, but simply because I'm absolutely convinced in the truth of Scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit and the sovereignty of God. This might be the prayer of our hearts this morning as we finish up. Fair enough? So if you guys would stand on your feet, we're going to sing loud. This place is yours. If you want to come down front or in aisles, if you need to sit or stand, whatever you need to do, we really want this to be a time just to express our hearts. Thank mm-hmm. you.